My name is Willie Bolin. I study influence, persuasion, and leadership in selling and sales management, and I teach people how to sell. In this podcast, we'll talk to some of the world's top sales leaders and see what we can learn from them. Welcome to the Sales Lab. This episode of the Sales Lab is brought to you by the 2021 National Collegiate Sales Competition, a virtual sales recruiting event and role play competition happening March 5th through 8th, and hosted by my undergraduate alma mater, the Coles College of Business at Kennesaw State University, just north of Atlanta, Georgia. Let me read a little bit from their website. The National Collegiate Sales Competition, or the NCSC, Participants come from the most elite sales programs from universities around the world. The exceptional education, training, and faculty have collaborated to develop the next generation of sales leaders. In fact, I'm told there will be about 72 schools sending teams to this year's event, with each of these schools sending multiple student representatives. In other words, this will be a huge source for job candidates. What does it mean for you? Well, if you're a company looking to hire top sales talent, You need to be involved in this. I should point out that in addition to their main event in March, the NCSC will also hold a preliminary virtual career fair on February 12th. So there are plenty of ways to get involved and find the right salespeople for your organization. Visit www.ncsc, as in National Collegiate Sales Competition, dash KSU, as in Kennesaw State University, dot org for more information on how you can get involved. Your competitors might be there, so why not you? Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Sales Lab. We are continuing our conversation with Alex Homer from the Tom James Company. We cover a number of topics in this one, largely issues related to competition. Specifically, I think we touch on some ways of looking at competition that maybe not everyone is aware of. For example, there are multiple flavors of competition. That's what we've titled the episode. We have interpersonal, which I think is what most people think about when they're thinking about competition, right? It's me versus the other people in my office. It's, It's me against them. But There's also intergroup, where maybe it's my office versus another office, or my territory versus another territory. But then there's also this other type of competition that we think is very valid and shows a lot of promise, which would be intrapersonal competition, where individuals compete with their prior accomplishments, right? So it's, you know, what's your personal best? Can you do better this year than you did last year? And uh, given some of the challenges that emerge from highly competitive climates, for example, unethical behaviors, backstabbing, infighting, all of these things uh, are noted criticisms of using competition as a motivational tool. We think maybe intrapersonal competition is a way to get around some of those negative effects. Alex also shares a really interesting model of career development, starting with a salesperson who's dependent on others for growth, then graduates to a stage of independence where they can do it all on their own. And then according to Alex, if you're lucky, you get to a point where you're interdependent with a lot of other people and everyone's helping each other and there's some synergy. Anyway, hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks for tuning in. Now, you mentioned to me earlier, before we really started down this line of conversation, that you, you sort of feel that this year has been similar to the year that you started. I think you said 2008, there was a recession and people were, you know, there were, there were a lot of questions in a salesperson's mind, right? Are people going to be able to buy? Am, am, you know, am I going to be okay? Explain that. Walk us through that a little bit. So 2008, when I started, and I started at the end of January in 2008, so it's not like I can look back and go, well, the beginning of 08 was great. All of 08 was terrible. Um, <laughs> and everybody was coming off of 07, and they were all, you know, it's like the disco lights were still, you know, spinning, and, and the music was kind of fading, and everybody was like, okay, the party's over. 
And, and the difference between then and now is that was not a, it was not an event. It was legitimately a season. And it wasn't a season in the sense that it was, you know, six months. It was, you know, a few years and everybody knew it mm. and everybody knew why. And the difference between that and the pandemic is, you know, the pandemic came on quite urgently. We all saw what was going on in the East um, with China and how it migrated westward through Europe. And then it eventually came to the United States in, in the end of the first quarter. People knew what was coming. And then when it got here, we moved on things so swiftly that it created this economic event and everybody knew what it was from. It's everything shutting down. We're taking aggressive action at once, you know, all at once. And everybody knew that this uncertainty were around this, but our, our actions behind it was kind of the genesis for this whole, you know, office closures, you know, the stock market having two dips, you know, pretty aggressively in the, in the first half of the year. Everybody knew what that stemmed from. And I think people's perception was that it was going to be you know, shorter lived than the economic situation of 2008 and 2009. Hmm. And so people are making money. I think there's a level of uncertainty that has kept a lot of the economic outlooks to be probably more people setting higher or lower expectations about it. But if you look at other industries, home sales have never been higher than they've been right now. People are refinancing, people are buying houses, people are buying cars, people are buying in a low market when in 08 and 09, people were not looking at the market opportunistically. People were looking at it like, I, we just need to get through this. We're, we're just in trouble. Yeah. We're just in trouble, right? So that's why- That's interesting. We, do, you, do you suppose it, at least the way it was framed, that the, the quarantine and, and all of this was sort of framed, I think we all initially thought that it was going to be temporary. So you think people are, are better at perceiving a you know, setback as temporary versus one of ambiguous length, I guess? I think it just depends on what your experience level is. You look at different generations. And I had a client, a really successful client of mine, explain this to me the other day. And he said, you know what one of the most productive generations that we had in economically in the United States was? And I said, what? And he said, it was the years between the 60s and the 1980s to the early 1990s. And I said, well, why do you think that? And he just said, well, those were the children and the teenagers that grew up during the Second World War. Mm. And I said, well, explain that further to me, if you don't mind. And he just said, well, when you are young and you deal with circumstances like that, it sets within you a, an expectation that things like this can happen. And within the 60s and the 80s and the early 90s, we had a tremendous amount of economic progress. Sure, there's going to be ups and downs and oil crises and things like that and booms and busts. But, but in large part, people, business owners, a lot of corporations were created that are still successful today during that time period because that generation was used to what they had seen when they were younger. And the 90s, the early 2000s, aside from 08 through 2010, the mid 2000s, it was fairly smooth sailing when you want to think about that. 
And mm-hmm. people were not really used to dealing with things like what we're dealing with right now. And so when you deal with adversity, you learn how to adapt and you pattern your behavior because of that. And I think that what we'll find moving forward is the world we live in economically will probably have a little bit more judiciousness about how they operate with certain things. We certainly know that people are always going to be thinking about, we remember when 2020 happened and here's what we learned from it. And so with us as a sales company, we're learning that we need to find ways that make what we do easier for our our clients to be a part of. And we're seeing our competitors, stores, large companies that have a, a huge real estate imprint, they're going bankrupt. They're filing chapter seven, they're restructuring debt, they're closing stores. And our business model is we're able to keep it the way that we are because that was never part of what we were doing to begin with. You know, I hadn't really thought about it in this way until you, until what you just said, but it is true that we have not really had to do this before. You know, we've had bird flu and SARS and, you know, we've had these scares. We've had these threats that have always just sort of faded away, at least for those of us in the, in the United States largely. But we have not really ever, at least in, you know, living memory, had to deal with something like this. So it's in some ways no wonder that you see so much chaos and differing opinions and, you know, convoluted information saying, oh, this is good, this is bad, vice versa, all of this confusion, because honestly, no, nobody alive right now has ever had to deal with this in the United States. Absolutely. Maybe makes it a little bit more justified. One of the other things that we wanted to talk about was competition. And I know one of my doctoral students, a uh, brilliant guy by the name Alec, so not Alex, but Alec, with a C, which is quite annoying to me because I often have to refer to him, uh, you know, it's like a project that belongs to Alec. You know, I refuse to try to make it Alex's because then it sounds like Alex. So I just always say it like in the most convoluted way, you know, well, that, 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 is, that is a project uh, with which Alec is associated, you know, why don't you just call it Alex's project? Well, because then you think I'm talking about somebody else. Uh, anyway, so Alec reached out to you. He's he's doing a little bit of research on uh, – well, he's doing a lot of research actually. He's very, quite, quite productive. But uh, one of the things he's been looking at is competition within sales organizations. And of course, we've been using peer-to-peer competition and team-to-team competition and certainly company versus company competition for all of time, right? And especially in sales, this is sort of historically ubiquitous, right? I mean, every company talks about, oh, well, we're going to have a competition to motivate these people. We're going to, we're going to try to hire former athletes and former pageant contestants and people that have really had to compete and win and manage uncertainty. And so he called and asked you some questions about the nature of competition there at Tom James. Walk us through a little bit of uh, what came out of that discussion. So Alec and I had a really fruitful conversation about the the concept of competition within within a sales organization, particularly ours at here at Tom James. And one of the things that I think is a common denominator between a lot of people in our company and a lot of sales companies that do well is they have an inherent competitive nature that is seeking to be harnessed and cultivated. And I think that in the right way, you can build a cohesive 
environment that still fosters a healthy culture of competition. And that's one of the things that we have found to be a very enticing um, feature about the, the company that we have. And so particularly with millennials and the new generation of, of talent that we're hiring, what we have found is they, a lot of them come from team environments. It could be fraternities, sororities, it could be organizations in school, could be organizations in their, their religious venues. And we apply that nature that they have and we nurture that and we just connect that between what they have and what we do and guide that towards a common team goal, which is what I discussed uh, earlier before. Does that make sense? Yeah, certainly. So, we, but when you say team goal, are you talking about the Tom James organization as a whole? Or are you talking about your Houston office or what is meant by team? We are talking about the Houston office. Now, the company has company goals, right? But if you want to keep people engaged, you can't give them too big a goal, which is why long-term goals are great, but they're not always the most effective for people keeping people engaged. Short-term goals are. Mm. And while company goals are exceptionally important, you have to have goals that are on a little bit more of a micro scale. So what's the goal in your market? What's the goal in your region? What's the goal in your office? And then breaking that down into what are the individual goals for each partner on the team. And so what we do is we take each person's goals, we combine them, we determine what the office goals are, and we will work backwards from that so that everybody on the team wins. And when they do, the office wins. And we talk about the rewards and things like that and the, and the positive implications that come from that um, when everybody is achieving so, and the team goal then, are you sort of comparing that to the performance of other teams at Tom James, to the performance of your team last year or at some prior time, or, or what, what's the basis of comparison? So the basis of comparison is the goals that we have, um, we don't necessarily compete with other offices. Now we have rankings and things like that, but there are certain things that, you know, there we have offices that have 45 people. We have offices that have five people. So you can't have a competitive landscape on all factors being considered just between, you know, two markets, right? A market in Idaho is not going to have the same opportunities, perhaps a market in St. Louis or Atlanta or somewhere else. So within the office, typically we've, we're fostering a competitive environment to grow our numbers over year after year after year. So 2019 being our best year, how do we grow that into 2020? How do we grow next year on, you know, off of 2020s numbers, things like that. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. So it's, it's really about your unit's growth over time uh, than it is about outranking Dallas office or something like that. Yes. Makes sense to me. Well, and this is this is a lot of what on this specific project, uh, Alec and I have been bouncing around. And, and it's it's not just us. There's other people uh, that have talked about these things. Uh, uh, Wyatt Schrock, uh, a friend of ours who's up at Michigan State University, I think has some work on this. And there's there's a few others that say, you know, when we when we talk about competition or competitiveness, you know, there's a temptation to think about that in in sort of the most basic terms, which would be, you know, what have we seen in movies? What have we seen, you know, uh, on Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross? Well, the competition that Alec Baldwin is talking, hi, Alec, I know you're listening, that Alec Baldwin is talking about in Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross is 
very specifically against your peers, against your neighbors, against your friends, you know? Well, that's not the only flavor, right? We can do it between teams, you know? That way the, the, the guy in the cubicle next to you, you don't have to have any hard feelings toward because you two are going to work together to beat out the Boston office or something, right? And then, uh, then there's at least, there's probably more than this, but there's at least one more type, which is simply an intra-individual type of competition, right? I want to be better than I was yesterday. And I know that uh, having gone to a couple of your you all sales meetings, which are always a hell of a lot of fun and really interesting to see all the things that you guys do for your salespeople. But when I go to those meetings and I see things like you guys bring everybody up on stage who has had their best month yet during the prior six months. And that to me is like a perfect example of what intrapersonal competition would look like. We're not going to celebrate that you sold more than Amanda Latimer. You might celebrate. Uh, but we're, what we're really going to celebrate is the fact that you had a better year this year than you did last year. And that's pretty amazing. It's not rocket science. Pretty much anybody can do that. But for some reason, when we think about competition, we think, you know, winners and losers, winners and losers. Well, you know, even if we look to sports, there's sports that don't really abide by that, you know, in the first place. Swimming, you're just trying to beat yourself. I mean, yeah, there's going to be a competition and, and you'll win a trophy if you beat the other people at the swim meet. But, you know, the thing that you're measured on if you're on a swim team is, did you do better than your prior time? So there's precedent for this type of thinking in other areas, sports and, and wherever else. But I don't know, it's just kind of interesting to us that it would be easy to implement that type of perspective toward competition any company could do it. It just modify the language you use, maybe change the awards you give and the recognition that you give out, but it's totally doable. And yet we don't see a hell of a lot of companies doing that. And I'm not sure why. Well, I think that um, companies are built a little bit differently. Um, some companies are built where, you know, you, you crush it one year and then the company just says, okay, let's get the calculator out and then let's calculate that number times 1.25 and grow it by 25%. And it becomes this really, really, really large stretch goal. And let's try to hit it. Some companies go, okay, great. Well, we overpaid on bonuses. So let's make it really, really challenging for people to hit it next year. Some companies go, man, we, everybody crushed it, but we still have to cut the bottom 10%. So you cut everybody that was 105% of quota and you keep the ones that are 120 and above. We've seen that. We just said, if we can create an environment where everybody wins or everybody has, not everybody wins because you're always going to have the haves and the have nots. That's just, it's, it's an ugly way of life and we wish things were different, but that's just the way that it is. Certain people make different decisions than others. But if we can create an environment where everybody has the opportunity to win, really truly has it in earnest then you'll have a lot more people buy into that. And, and you have to do it in a healthy way because even though it's, it's not a race per se, where getting to the finish line first matters and just crossing the finish line is the biggest victory, you still have to be careful with creating too much of a competitive environment because the route to getting there can be messy. And we found that. And veterans have learned to navigate that a little bit easier, but millennials coming out of school and coming into an environment like that, they want to, they want to have an ability, they want to have an equitable chance of winning more than anything um, because it allows them to find their place. Mm. And we've seen some of the challenges of not wrangling some of that in and, and, and what kind of environments that can create. And uh, what, what happens, what, what, what type of environments are created in the, in those situations? Well, you, you create interperson 
competition. And it may be unspoken, it may be verbalized, but it dilutes the culture because you take something that's synergistic and you turn it into a, a silo type environment where everybody has their own set of battleships and they're going in and they're, you know, they may not necessarily have friendly fire, so to speak, but they might. And you have to diffuse situations, you know, of conflict that way. And when you talk about things in terms of the team, rather than in terms of self, that's really where you can have the the best um, impact between your partners. Because one of my sales mentors and, and Willie, it might've been you that we've talked about this in one of your classes. You have three stages of a sales career. And the first stage is the stage of dependency. You go in, you don't know a whole lot. You're, maybe you're given some files, maybe you're given some accounts and you work them and you build off that and you get referrals and you, you maybe you get a base and stuff like that. And you just kind of grow it. And then you get to that first level of sales where you're like, okay, I'm, I'm kind of making it. I don't need to, I'm not struggling as much as I used to. And then you, you go to the independent stage, which is I kind of know everything and I, I'm, I'm good at what I do and I can handle my own and, and I'm, I'm past survival mode. Well, in, in a competition environment, you get out of dependency, you go into independent mode, and then you never exit that because yeah. you know the best organizations that are predicated on sales, their culture is based on interdependence, which is everybody working together and everybody winning for a common goal. Mm. So if it's overly competitive, you'll get to independence and you may even get to independence quickly with your people. But they will stay independent and they won't become intra-dependent where they depend on one another. And that's what we are wanting to cultivate and we continually strive to cultivate. So it's it's making sure that people have success, but making sure they have success working alongside one another so that they can lean on each other for success. It's how championship teams get built in sports, as you've seen, right? Same thing. So what, I'm sorry, I, I don't mean to interrupt. I, I just what are they depending on each other for? What is what is the interdependence about? Well, with what we do, you can't really. Most of everybody has their own responsibilities, right? And in a lot of companies, it's the same way. So it may not necessarily be. Well, I depend on Willie to measure this guy. Will I go sell this other guy? That's not how it works. It might be I depend on Willie to support me in my goals. And him motivate me and encourage me to hit my goals and for me to motivate him and encourage him to hit his goals. And it may be something in a sense that in some of those sensitive situations, I choose Willie over choosing a client or a prospect because our relationship is more important than me making a sale kind of thing. So when you deal yeah. with some of that friendly fire situation. It's more about the team success than an individual success. But if you're not careful and you've seen organizations like that, and I've worked for organizations like that in the past, people step on one another and there's no trust. Yeah. I like that. I like that interdependence. I, I don't know that I have heard those three stages, but I like it. I like that a lot. And, and you have to imagine that if, if you've been around for 20, 30, 40 years, and, and certainly in a business like Tom James, that you've got a pretty good book of business. You know, you've got a pretty reliable, robust, large income at that point. So it's like, okay, do I really need to go and find a new prospect or am I okay? Can I make myself feel good by helping somebody else make them feel good, you know, as well? It's like, you know, I don't need 
the commission from a marginal cell to make my life make sense, you know? So it seems natural, but so many industries, so many contexts don't work that way. You're 60 years old and making tons and tons of money and you're still maybe fixated on your own personal success. And I guess it's just a socialization thing. It's just a context thing, you know? If that's the way the sales organization was that you sort of grew up in, that maybe you're just kind of bound to that. Maybe it's difficult to break away. Yeah, I think you, it maybe it's born on a basis of fear. You know, you act like you have no food on the plate and you, mm. you got to fight, kick, claw, scream, you know, do whatever you can for everything that you have. And I, re, I understand and empathize for that. But Steve Jobs put it best in, in his commencement speech to, I forgot what university, but it was, it was around just before he passed away. And he said, if you want to run fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, take others with you. Mm. And the more success you have, the longer you do it, the more wisdom you gain, the more you, the more gifts you are able to give. And you will absolutely have more fulfillment bringing others with you than, than doing it alone. And so um, that's kind of why you have to get that ingrained in your culture even in its infancy with your newest partner so that they know you're going to come to a point where you are that 20, 30, 40 year veteran and you need to be prepared and able to look behind you and, and get the next people in line and bring them up with you. It's your succession plan. Jim Collins talks about that in Good to Great. You always want to be replacing yourself. You want to work yourself out of a job in a good way. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. And yet people struggle. You know, it's one of those things I feel like if, if you were to explain all of this to a room of 100 people, probably 99 of them would get it and follow and agree, almost all of them. And then you tell them to go implement it in their organizations and it would be it would be a big it would be a big struggle. So it'd be interesting to maybe Alec can fix the whole problem. We'll just put it on his shoulders. Yeah. <laughs> He's on his way. He's on his way. We're going to stop it right there for now. Please dive into the next episode of the Sales Lab to hear the conclusion of this interview. By the way, if you like what you've heard so far, be sure to subscribe and rate the podcast on whatever app you use to listen. Also, share this with your colleagues and friends, and let's continue to have a deeper discussion on all things related to selling and sales leadership. See you next time in the Sales Lab.